Hello, and welcome to the GovLab's Collective Intelligence Podcast. Our guest today is Joe Michaeli. He's the head of communities for the City of York Council in the United Kingdom. We talk about the Neighborhood Approaches to Loneliness Program, a three-year action research initiative that explored how neighborhood activity could affect loneliness. We also discuss a number of other place-based mutual aid and community action programs to address local challenges in York, which the city calls People Helping People. Thank you so much for joining us today. It would be helpful for our listeners if, in your own words, you could start by telling them about the York Neighborhood Approach. What was it? Why did it start? And what does it hope to accomplish? No problem. So York, and I work for the City of York Council as the head of communities there, has a a long history of investing in community development and the power of neighbourhoods and seeing people as active citizens. I think when people choose to act around issues, priorities that are close to their heart on where they live, often in their local neighbourhood, you can tap into the agency and action of individuals more deliberately and people are more likely to come together and self-organise at a neighbourhood level where they live as opposed to uh, bigger places, such as a a city level. And as I said, York has a long history of investing in asset-based community development over 30 years, providing small grants to support people to get involved in community and social action projects where they live through neighbourhood structures. York, I think, over the very many years, has built on that investment often build, often cause called capacity building and as a result of that it's got some really strong and trusted relationships that have evolved over the years between local people the voluntary and community sector or NGOs as they're often called in the states and people serve those neighborhoods elected members or councillors and the services that have been provided so when we're faced with challenges and loneliness has been one of those challenges for us that we're going to come to, we are more able to act together through public services and local people acting as citizens together, as opposed to being in isolation from one another, and to explore some of those problems together to really get underneath the skin of some of those causal factors. Hmm. And could you describe the origin of the neighborhood approaches to loneliness? Why did the city of York and its partners at the Joseph Browntree Foundation choose loneliness as the issue to focus on? No problem. So we were aware of loneliness being an issue in the city, but also in society across the country and recognizing it more and more as a a public problem, a public health problem. And the delivery of public health services often sits with the health authority or the city council. So we were seeing it as one of the most pressing public problems in the city of York. And and the research borne out the really negative effect that you can experience if you suffer from loneliness or social isolation. People that are lonely are often twice as more likely to die early. And the risk factor can be similar to smoking Um, a considerable number of cigarettes a day. It can be worse than obesity and often worse than physical inactivity. And often people that suffer from loneliness or are isolated are often heavy users of social care services, shall we say. And those services can be very costly and often be seen through 
a deficit or negative lens. So as a result of that, services, social services, are often about a person meeting a threshold through an assessment to receive a package of care. So the conversation is already about a point of crisis in somebody's life, as opposed to a different type of conversation that could be more about early intervention, prevention and community development, where we might be asking the person what a better life or a good life might look like, as opposed to what a service package might look like. So from a council and a city perspective, it makes good economic sense because you're reducing demand, but more importantly, definitely more importantly, you're supporting somebody to get a life rather than a service and to broaden their network of friends, social contacts, and to contribute to where they live. And often that's the neighborhood as we were saying before. So it made a lot of sense for us to look at this as a priority. We partnered with the Joseph Roundtree Foundation who had um, some fantastic experience of community researcher programs, participatory appraisal sometimes it's called, and they have a really big research unit. So they were quite keen to conduct some participatory research within York, which is one of the places where they have their head office, even though they're a national research foundation. And they have also had uh, a number of properties, housing properties, because they're a social landlord in um, a couple of areas of York, but one particular neighborhood called New Earswick, which has some amazing history in the city. So they were keen to, shall we say, get their fingers dirty with us and get involved in a community research program where we trained up over 40 local people as community researchers to explore with a broader group of over a thousand people what was causing loneliness and how we might work with and alongside the local residents of New Earswick as active citizens to test out the findings from the research and co-design some projects to address loneliness together. Right. And like you touched on in the last question, the, the city trained local residents to become community researchers who spoke with more than a thousand residents about loneliness and possible solutions. So could you tell us a little bit more about how the action research program worked and who was involved? Yeah, uh, I mean, providing training is crucial. I mean, we all need training. We're always unlearning and learning, aren't we? Whether we're in public services or if we're a volunteer, if we're in the NGO sector. So we provided some training in uh, participatory learning and action research for the community researchers initially, so that they could feel comfortable with the, the approach and what we were asking them to do. And then when they were trained up, it was a case of hitting the streets really as a community researcher and speaking to people at the bus stop, at the street corner, in schools, in churches, in community groups, in pubs, in the local doctor's surgery, in local shops, to find out about how people experience loneliness and what might be some of those sort of contributing factors but then also the ideas that they might have to help improve on or address loneliness. So we organized a further two days training after the initial training to explore the findings from the first phase of community research. So to look at the analysis 
of our findings and to look at those issues that were causing loneliness and then to explore again with local people after we grouped those sort of findings into various themes and priorities to come together with local people again to co-design local action plans and projects to help address some of those issues. I mean, some of the issues might have been as we would all commonly associate, you know, with separation and loss amongst the life course, our own lifestyles, the degree to we the, the degree to which we were connected to our particular community, the level of social networks and neighbors and friends we may have. So yeah, training was crucial. Going back at various points with the community researchers to check in with them on the priorities and themes, and then back out to the community to look at the projects that we might design with them with some small grant funding to bring some of those great ideas to life. Yeah, and tell us more about some of those outcomes from the research program. What solutions did participants come up with to address the causes of loneliness among the city's population? Yeah, I mean, some really great ideas. And as I was saying to you earlier, Dane, um, bear in mind we did this initial research back in 2013, you know, 2021 now, and some of those projects are still there. But I, I can remember some film clubs being run at the uh, local community centre, the New Earswick Folk Hall. Uh, so film night is still a really popular night at the community centre where they've got a community cinema. Um, some walking groups, really very, very powerful. Uh, the power of walking for well-being and addressing loneliness. And so there were some walking trails that was, were designed. We looked at the actual trails to make sure people felt they were accessible and safe to use. We connected people up that were lonely and that were maybe struggling with their movement. Some people might have been disabled, connected them with somebody as a walking buddy so that they could feel safe and develop a friendship. Some wider campaigns. We had a smile campaign, you know, so to just when you were walking about in your neighborhood to say good morning, to smile. It's amazing, I think. Sometimes in society, the citizen has been designed out as opposed to being designed in. And just that culture of permission to say good morning, to smile and, and get on with your business. We all need people in our lives, don't we? So to just feel connected and feel safe. We had some cracking projects where we brought some of our older citizens together. I was at one only last week, the New Year's Week, Life Less Lonely initiative they're called the nellies if you break down the words which is a group primarily of older ladies older women that come together as a group of peers to support one another and some of those people were the original community researchers so it was lovely to go back and see the nellies last week and have a cup of tea and share some stories storytelling again was a good example of sharing people's stories of how they might have felt lonely, but through connecting with some of these projects, they were now seen as a valuable contributing citizen as opposed to being vulnerable. And some of those projects have now grown into wider and larger city initiatives that we have in place um, across public services and the voluntary and community sector. Could you talk more about the role that non-governmental organizations and philanthropic organizations played in the research program? 
Why was it important for the city of York to partner with those organizations? Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, Joseph Raintree is the classic example of a foundation and a philanthropist. The person is synonymous, Joseph Raintree, with the history of York and that culture of giving, of volunteerism, of service, of connection. So to have some of that investment from the Joseph Raintree Foundation in the place where Joseph Raintree created the village of New Earswick was pretty key because people had that sense of place, had that sense of connection with the village of New Earswick and the history of Joseph Raintree. But the foundation also has national reach and track. They lead in the UK the work on poverty nationally um, at the moment, which is a massive issue for us across society. But their research arm leads that work on the UK combating and eradicating poverty. And loneliness is a part of that. So the, the, the value of partnering with a philanthropist and key foundation was massive on a number of levels, given the research expertise they brought and some small grant funding alongside the city. But then us also partnering with those smaller NGOs, the, the smaller voluntary organisations in the city, because we were very much wanting as a city council to partner with them, to alliance with them, to build allies and friendships, because it's often those local NGOs that have the profile in a neighbourhood and connection to people that live in a place, as opposed to the council. The council can be seen as a little bit paternalistic, and just a provider of services, rather than a facilitator, an enabler, a convener of partners and stakeholders to help address shared priorities and challenges that we face. And I think it's always better to partner, isn't it? Yeah, it's always better to have a conversation, invite people to a party as opposed to a meeting and have a chat about why people really like to live in a place and what they love about that place. And that can be sometimes more easily done through NGOs as opposed to the big bad state. And the, the city of York continues to support community-led responses to loneliness through a network of local area coordinators. Could you tell us more about that network and the other resources the city offers in support of those community-led initiatives? Of course. So look, I always smile talk about local area coordination because it is one of the most best and impactful approaches I have ever been involved in throughout my 30-year career in community development. So we are a part of the um, international movement of local area coordination that originated in Western Australia 30 years ago. And coincidentally, Dane, the um, new book, Power and Connection, an international book about local area coordination, is launched tomorrow. But the, uh, the clue is in the title, Power and Connection, and how local area coordination can act as a bridge between loneliness and isolation and vulnerability towards active citizenship and action and participation and, contribu and contribution. So we're a part of that international network, as I said, originated 30 years ago. The movement has been in place in the UK for 10 years. So we are uh, part of a network of about a dozen cities and York has had the local area coordination program in place for nearly five years. It's place-based. So we employ 
about a dozen local area coordinators. They are employed by the local authority. They are recruited on their own value base. So they have to have really good values that reflect humanity, compassion, equality, good human skills, good listening skills. And they tend to work within a neighborhood, no more than of, a, of about 12,000 people, where they will connect with people that may be struggling with their mental health, loneliness, isolation, poverty, housing issues, and have that good life conversation. So they will start from the point of what can you do rather than what can't you do? And they will find out about what are the sort of gifts and passions and skills that the person might have that they might have forgotten about as a result of personal tragedy or trauma. They might be struggling. We all struggle in life at a certain point. We all struggle at times with our mental health. But the starting point is what might a better life or a good life look like for you as a conversation starter, as opposed to do you need a service? Can you meet a threshold? And how we can tap into your own agency and support you to build your connection and contribute to your neighborhood where you, it's a marvelous program, marvelous approach. It's a part of the suite of asset-based community development initiatives that exist, that are place-based and see the person, not the problem, and try to make more visible what is often invisible in a person's life or in a person's locality. We've worked with over 3,000 people in the last four and a half years. And as a re result of that approach, it's between about 75 and 96% of those people are no longer in contact with services, with social care, and they have sought that better life through a solution in the community and are now connecting as an active citizen rather than somebody that is lonely. We have within our sort of armory a good data set, but it's a mix of quantitative and qualitative data. And the strongest bit of qualitative data that we have is stories and storytelling, as I mentioned before. And storytelling has become a little bit infectious in York, and it's acted as a ripple across the city. People are now hearing all of these amazing stories from individuals that might have been struggling, might have been isolated, might have experienced poverty, might have had little or no friends, and they are now contributing as active citizens to their local communities. And as a result of that, those communities and neighborhoods are more inclusive. There's a more, there's a greater diversity of voice and connection. And as a result of that, our local economy is improving at a neighborhood and city level. And people are going on to, you know, better lives through better connection, better jobs, better learning, etc. So local area coordination is one example. There are others. We have an initiative called Social Prescribe is connected often with our GP practices through the local doctor. And it really realizes a lot of people might attend for an appointment with their GP, with their doctor, for issues that are non-clinical. They might be depression, might be poverty, they might be struggling with their mental health. And often a solution can be better sourced through you connecting to a social prescriber that will then connect you to some local voluntary activity or some events that might be being run in your locality through an NGO. 
And as a result of that initiative, which has gone um, national now um, through funding through the government, we've seen a 30% drop in people attending appointments with their GP through non-clinical, for non-clinical reasons. So that's great. That's freeing more space up for the GPs that are really busy to spend with people that might need the support of primary care as opposed to a solution in the community. And it's often acting as a bridge to the voluntary sector, that pipeline of volunteers becoming richer and more inclusive. And we have some others that are recognised as that sort of rainbow of community-centred support. We have a marvellous initiative called Good Gym in York, which uses the power of running, because uh, a lot of people run on treadmills in gyms, don't they? But our movement of Good Gym runners, that is probably getting to the point of about 500 individuals now in the city, run to do good in their community. They'll run on a Monday night to a community project, to maybe improve a green space, get involved in refurb in a community centre. But more importantly, a lot of our runners are connected to an older, lonely, isolated person who acts as the coach for the runner. And it's the older person that motivates the coach, sorry, that motivates the runner to run on a weekly basis, often on a dark night, on a cold or a rainy night, to connect with their older person who is their coach. And the real asset is the friend and the relationship that evolves. And we also have another initiative going back to the Neighbourhoods Loneliness Project, which is a Move the Masses NGO in the city, which looks at the power of movement to improve well-being and address loneliness. And they have done a map of all of our green spaces in the city that have urban gyms, where they've done videos to show people how to use the urban gym bit more of an inclusive lens but they then also have a movements program where they have trained volunteers who act as walking buddies to get alongside people who maybe have lost the confidence to get out of their house as a result of disability loneliness poor mental health and again the value of that initiative to improve a person's well-being is immense some, some of the data reflects that before being connected to a movement, your baseline score might be five out of 10. But after three months of connection to a movement, it rises to seven out of 10 in terms of how you would rate your mental health and well-being. And again, during the pandemic, the power of good gym and movements was absolutely amazing. As NGOs that were able to pivot and mobilize very quickly around their offer and, and connect with people during the pandemic, which we've all faced, unfortunately. And could you talk about some of the benefits that the community-based approach or the, the place-based approach brings to the city of York? Does it help to save money or time or make better use of the city's resources? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's a, it's a national debate that we have in the UK at the moment around the sort of reform of social care, because as I said before, social care, social services previously was often a deficit approach, a model that wasn't fit for purpose or even appropriate because you'd be having, you'd be coming into contact with a person at a point of crisis in their life, you know, and how they could then meet a threshold to get a care package. So how you can then broaden out the marketplace to have NGOs in that marketplace with us. And for those 
more person community centered solutions like good gym like move the masses like local area coordination like social prescribing to be viewed as an integral part of the system and not a nice to have add-on is where we need to move to because people who choose to use services as a result of a challenge they may face tell us what they would like is an offer that is more person-centered that starts with the good life conversation as opposed to what's wrong and how can we get you that care package so i think through broadening the marketplace that broadens the offer and it ensures if you take in the night neighborhood dimension there's no wrong door then for the person as a citizen who might be looking for help the first point of contact they might have might be the local area coordinator because they're deeply embedded in that person's neighborhood who will be able to provide some information and advice if that's all that's required to connect them to a local activity or if it's a piece of work that we need to work with that person over a longer period of time that's fine we will walk alongside that person to help them realize their vision for a good life but always through tapping into their own agency and their gifts and how we can might maybe support the person to share their gifts because it's often something that they've never really been asked about yeah how would you like to contribute what skills have you got how could we support you to share those skills and gifts and talents and passions you may have so it's a different starting point so what we are trying to do as a system and as the city council but also with our partners is revisit i would say what is our primary purpose and our primary purpose should be as a convener to create the conditions for thriving people and communities to evolve yeah and that might then realize itself in a stepping back and creating a space for others to step into but we're still there you know as a partner as a stakeholder with others and i think again we're blessed in york through having um, an amazing voluntary and community sector an ngo sector you know that is very vibrant is built on active citizenry but maybe you know four or five years ago we weren't tapping into the sector as well as we could it's often framed in the public policy framework now in uk as community power the sort of community power movement and if you can connect that movement more deliberately to the challenges that a place, a place may face like loneliness like health inequalities you'll be more successful in addressing the outcomes and challenges you are facing and i think some of our ngo activity was not always connected to that impact volunteering mindset that we've tried to grow with york being a city of service we were involved in doing some work as you probably know dane with nesta one of the biggest innovation and thought leadership charities ngos in the country around community power and social action during the uh, pandemic over the last two years so york was one of 20 councils cities uh, are part of this upstream collaborative movement so working upstream of problems in society and one of the key sort of outcomes of that action learning process i suppose was about recognizing that we needed to really enable people to help others more deliberately and for that movement to be founded in a set of values that reflected compassion 
connection, humility, and those to really be some of our core organizing principles for public service, but also for society as a whole. And then I think if you can anchor a place in those values, you will be creating that culture of permission that allows the individual, the team, the organization to act in a more collaborative mindset that then allows you to address those complex challenges in society through a more imaginative and innovative lens. So yeah, it always makes good sense for the council as the city to partner with others and the golden thread to be collaboration, I would say. Tell us more about how this approach helped to engage York's most vulnerable populations. Who are those populations within the larger subgroup? How did you engage them? And did you encounter any special challenges in doing so? I mean, that's an interesting question because, you know, you go back to local area coordination as an example. And one of the strap lines associated with local area coordination is to not use the V word, the vulnerable. Yeah, because we should be talking about the valuable. And it's about how you shine a light on some of the issues and challenges people face in society, but see those people as valuable and not vulnerable. But the very nature of something like local area coordination in the fact that it is place-based and we choose to initially work with people that might be struggling with their mental health, might be lonely and isolated, older people, their families and their carers, yeah? People that are generally struggling that are in poverty. You are inevitably, I suppose, working with people that might be deemed as vulnerable but your starting point is to see them as valuable and to tap into, as I said before, their own agency and to open up those gifts that they might have forgotten about. So it's a different starting point. And what you're actually trying to do is to create spaces that are safe for people in a neighborhood for citizens to act around issues that they choose to act on and to celebrate that. But the very nature of some of the approaches like local area coordination being place-based, so to not be covering a neighborhood or community that is between, you know, that is more than 12,000 people, allows you to be more connected. The local area coordinator will be walking alongside a caseload of people of about 60 people, between 50 and 60 people at any one time. Yeah. Supporting those individuals to take take action themselves and move on and to connect with others and then that frees up their more capacity to work with other people it's it's a sort of frame that is described as working in a more person-centered way across a lot of these approaches in the UK and in York at the moment whereas I said before you're seeing the person rather than the diagnosis you're seeing the whole person the whole family the whole life the whole neighborhood and community and how you can bring that all together to create those conditions for successful outcomes to be met. So whilst in public, we wouldn't say we're starting from the point of vulnerability, yeah, we're cognizant of that in terms of the parts of the population that we are working with. And if you said looked at the data set of the three top reasons why people choose to work with a local area coordinator. Mental health is first. Second is loneliness and isolation. Third are challenges with housing. Fourth is poverty. Yeah. And that would probably be a similar 
set of priorities across many of our NGO partners around why people choose to work with those as well. So you're naturally connecting with people that are on the edges of society who are struggling and might be deemed as vulnerable that we choose to shine the light on valuable. And on that note, could you um, talk a little bit more about some of those benefits that the community-based uh, approach brings to those communities, especially the communities who are underserved or, or excluded under typical models of public service delivery? Yeah, that's good. Again, that's a good question. I mean, we have, I haven't mentioned it yet, we have an amazing multiple complex needs network that, again, is, has received some investment from another foundation, the Lang Kelly Foundation, and that is about working with people that um, face multiple and complex needs. So those are traditionally challenge with, challenges with mental health, homelessness, poverty, uh, substance misuse, yeah, and framed as multiple and complex needs because it might not be one of those issues. There might be a number of those issues that a person might be facing at any one time. They might be in recovery, yeah? But often, the system that they are trying to navigate to improve their life outcomes and move out of recovery um, is very, very complex and doesn't always talk to different elements, doesn't talk to itself. So by bringing in the voice of people of lived experience, and that is our multiple and complex needs network, you have people of lived experience in conversations alongside our local area coordination team, alongside some of our NGOs that provide the recovery programs for people that may have faced challenges around substance, substance misuse, challenges with alcohol, you know? And that network has provided a really inclusive voice to rise in the city. And these are people that were often not involved in some of those discussions in their own neighborhoods or in some of the policy-making forums in the city. We've run a uh, program with the network called the System Changes Program, which has been run four, four, maybe five times now. And that's people have lived experience alongside practitioners and learning and learning together on a program that is about understanding the system better and building a better system that is more joined up and is informed by that voice of lived experience. And the network are doing some amazing work on the co-design of a set of cultural values for the city and the system, which has really got a lot of track that goes back to my point that I mentioned before, that if you have a system and a place that is anchored in that common set of values, you'll be more likely to act together, but it will be more informed by the value of multi-sector working, value of NGOs, adaptability, and collaboration. Now, those were the top three priorities that came out of the cultural value survey that has been developed over the last year in the city. And it's got some fantastic traction at the moment with city leaders, because we don't want to just be talking to ourselves as a group of practitioners or people of lived experience, you want to really engage those system leaders, those chief executives of the hospital, of the mental health trust, of the city council, of the housing providers, some of the leading GPs in this dialogue, and to get them all to be 
acting from a point of mutual value base that is about compassion and connection. So yeah, that's that's a really powerful movement again network that has grown up over the last two years actually. So two and a half years. So since I last spoke to you when we were doing the work around the Engage Cities program. So because that was a good three years ago, wasn't it? Certainly before the pandemic. So that's something new that has brought that voice of lived experience more deliberately into place making and place shaping the city. And as we've alluded to, during the the COVID-19 pandemic, the issues around mental health and loneliness have really been front of mind for people around the world. So could you talk about the role that mutual aid groups played in the city, the city of York's response to that challenge? Yes, how can I forget it? <laughs> the, rise, the rise of mutual aid, not, not only in York, but across the country and globally, you saw it because I can remember being sat in my working from home, you know, the pandemic, the first weekend where we were all told to work from home, rightly so, to reduce social contact. And literally over that first weekend, and bear in mind, York is a small city. It has a population of 215,000. We saw 22 mutual aid groups pop up and self-mobilize over that first weekend. And that was groups of local people coming together to support one another at a time of the pandemic where people were facing heightened levels of loneliness, isolation, poverty, and inequalities in society were rising. So that spirit of volunteerism and giving and neighbourliness was coming back into society quite naturally, literally overnight, over a weekend. And we saw over 10,000 people mobilise themselves through those 22 mutual aid groups that just popped up over that first weekend. So the council put a call to action out for volunteers to come forward and connect with us on some of the challenges we knew we would face as a result of the pandemic. For example, getting medicine and prescriptions and to getting food and to people that were deemed to be clinically vulnerable. We had to protect those groups that were shielded. So how we got food, medicine and to them how we maintained the sense of contact and conversation with those people whilst they were isolating. So those mutual aid groups that have popped up at a very local neighbourhood and often street were a massive asset for the city. Even where I have a neighbourhood estate built about 20 years ago, probably got about 150 houses on it. Our mutual aid group, the Goodwood Grove Neighbours Group, still exists on WhatsApp. We all know each other by names now, so we're all good neighbours, as opposed to not knowing one another, all looking out for one another. And it's just, I think, what we had back in society many, many years ago, where people used to look out for one another, used to leave their door unlocked. The phrase, it takes a village to raise a child, is maybe coming back into society. And mutual aid were just a massive asset when we were all struggling. And some of those NGOs I mentioned before, like Move the Messes, like Good Gym, like our Council for Voluntary Service, York CDS, were key again in connecting with those mutual aid groups, as did the City Council, to ensure that their offer of support 
was directed to the spaces where it was needed. So yes, lots of those groups still exist. And the design of public services is an area where individual residents usually have limited means to participate. How has your experience changed how you think about the design and delivery of public services? And has it changed how you think about government and public participation more broadly? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question again, because I do think it has acted as, acted as a catalyst for public services to rethink what they're about, as I said before. And this point, again, of the value of community power and people power and how those organising principles should inform what the public service delivery model is. Again, doing the work with Nesta through the Upstream Collaborative Programme, the main report that came out was called New Operating Models for Local Government. So that reflected that new mindset and that set of values and principles that should guide what local government and public services should look like, feel like, and be informed by. So I think that's been really powerful. You're seeing a better understanding maybe of leaders in public services, maybe understanding what community power is about. And if you are better connected as a state, as a council, as a provider of public services to communities, to neighbourhoods, and understand who some of those community leaders are, who know their communities better, probably than you do, you can then tap into that movement and that agency more effectively, and then maybe work more on prevention as a collective. So it's not just the council or the local authority or public service providers working on prevention, it's your whole place working on prevention, connecting people as active citizens around that sort of mindset that maybe reflects co-production. So you're seeing public services as a result that are more focused, I would say, on prevention and early intervention and more cognizant of the value of community power and asset-based community development. And one of the key foundations of asset-based community development is the power of the neighbourhood and the associations, the relationships that exist at that neighbourhood level. So that goes right back to our starting question around the neighbourhood model in York and the neighbourhood approaches to loneliness campaign back in 2013. And maybe the pandemic has shone a lens on it again and has acted as a catalyst for some good stuff because there was a lot of crap stuff that came out of the pandemic, as we know but a greater focus on prevention and people power has certainly come out, which I'm delighted to see as a proponent of community development. And thinking back on the project, what would you identify as the major successes and the major challenges that you encountered? What would you do differently and what advice do you have to other people who want to do similar work? You're asking me lots of good questions, Dane. Um, I think the major successes are that on a very human level, people now have more friends, are seen as more valuable, not vulnerable, you know, are more connected, and you are genuinely seeing a more inclusive discourse and conversation at a neighbourhood level. And importantly, people have better lives as a result of that. Often when people are asked about poverty and the poverty they experience, when people tell their own stories, 
And I heard a lady share this story, Poverty Truth Commission, a couple of weeks ago. And the automatic lens from service providers would be, oh, you've maybe got more money now, you've got more disposable income as a result of you being connected. And she said, the poverty I experienced was shame, loneliness, disconnection. And as a result of me getting involved in these projects, I now have more friends. I've had some fun. I know some of the city leaders that I didn't know before. So I think York as a place is maybe more connected, is more cognizant of some of what does loneliness and poverty really mean for people. And it isn't always about, as I said, disposable income. It's also about the richness of your social connections and the amount of friends you have. So I think that's been a really, a really powerful learning point for the city. I think as a result of the approach, public services generally are more person-centered, are more inclusive. Yeah? The conversation that you maybe receive if you phone up the for some support is a bit more person-centered and they might connect you with a solution in your community, in your neighborhood as opposed to automatically giving you a transactional response that brings you into council services, you know? I think that, that's different. And obviously, you're seeing levels of loneliness improve because people are more connected. The mental health, I hate the term, but the mental health tsunami that we know is rising as a result of the pandemic is enormous. But we will be more able to respond to that challenge as a result of us all looking through an asset-based community development lens that is strength-based as opposed to deficit-based and asking people what can you do as opposed to what can't you do, seeing what's strong, not what's wrong, you know? And that, as York as a place, that's become more of the normal response. And I think when you can get a place, a city, to really connect with a strength or asset-based approach, that's a great example of a system changing from a deficit response to an asset response. And as a result of that, people are generally looking out for one another but as a first point of contact, as opposed to, oh, let's connect you with social care. People's own family and community networks are stronger. But yeah, a good starting point is having more friends, isn't it? We all need more friends in our lives. Depends how connected you are on Facebook, I suppose. And could you tell us about your plans for the future? How is the City of York Council planning to further support or expand this work? I mean, it's a really, it's a good question. It's a big challenge because across society, across the globe, we're all living with the budgetary consequences of COVID, you know, and the pandemic and a climate of fiscal consolidation. I heard it described as the other day, which basically means there is a smaller public purse. You know, when we face budget deficits and challenges. And often that can mean that the system response is to move back to crisis mode. And the old muscle memory of crisis kicks back in, as opposed to the memory of place and social capital and real leadership and collaboration. So we all face a challenge, but pleasingly in York, you are seeing a year-on-year -year increase in investment in prevention. Yeah, those schemes that we've been speaking about, those approaches across 
the NGO sector or even the public sector continue to sustain their investments, but to also grow. Yeah, local area coordination, for an example, we started off with a team of three local area coordinators. Four years ago, we now have 12. Social prescribing started with a team of three. You've now got a team of between 12 and 15, I think. Yeah. So that's proof that the model and the approach is working and the investment is following the evidence base. It is a challenge for us, but I think the wider challenge I touched on before is a national debate in the UK that is the model of social care really fit for purpose at the moment? And a lot of people that use services are telling us that it's not. And we need that wider public service reform of what social care is about to at scale be more person-centered to focus on community power and to focus on some of these approaches that we have been exploring in our conversation today but pleasingly we continue to invest in the approach the teams continue to grow the approach is being scaled up across the city the conversation is becoming more inclusive as a result of new movements, as I said, like the Multiple Complex Needs Network coming into this space, joining the party, and actually challenging us more on what is that common set of cultural values that we need. That is the conversation that we're involved in at the moment. What might a prospectus for York look like in 10 years' time or sooner? if we are genuinely a health generating city. I heard it described as uh, from a leading public health professional earlier this week. So at least we're having that conversation. How do we continue to need to push ourselves around prevention to be a good health place where that is the norm for everybody as opposed to only a few? Joe, it was great to speak with you. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this interview. For more examples of innovative community engagement and collective action projects, visit collective-intelligence.thegovlab.org. And to hear more episodes of the podcast, don't forget to subscribe.